The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Murder Shelf Book Club, where today we will be discussing To Kill and Kill Again by John Costin, Part 1 of a three-part series. He writes, With each new grisly discovery, Larry Weatherman, who would become Captain of Detectives, would be the principal caretaker of yet another unsolved murder. Neither Weatherman nor anyone else could see that when all the killings began, it harbored a split personality that plotted one sadistic, torturing murder after another, while also managing to impress almost everyone with doting favor upon favor. No one would see the unseen menace who held an entire community in suspense was someone with a name and a face they all knew well. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy. Hey, Murder Shelf Bookies, welcome back. I'm Tara. And I'm Jill. And thank you for joining us today and taking part in our book club. We've gone global, Jill. Global. Global. We are everywhere. Thank you so much for listening. As you all know, or if you're just tuning in, Jill and I have been in our own book club for some time now and combined with Jill's unique forensic psych expertise, we decided to bring our book club on the air to share with all of you. And during our first episodes of the month, we review and discuss a book that we've pulled off our murder shelf. Mm-hmm. We don't want to give you a boring, linear timeline. And as this is a book review, we like to follow in the steps of the author to give you the story from their point of view. In second cast, which has ended up being the last part of our series, I guess, if, yeah. we, if we could call it anything. It still revolves around the book here and there. We just like to pull at those little threads so it's kind of like that wayward thread on your sweater that you pick at and then you're like, oh, crap, I pulled it too hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so exactly. we definitely take that deeper dive into those aspects of the case that really fascinated us. As we're moving into our third month of this podcast, we are certainly very appreciative of your comments, reviews, and feedback. And we wanted to give a special shout out to Campbell Rising, who left us a stellar review on iTunes. She said, I stumbled upon Murder Shelf Book Club on Instagram. What a great podcast. It is probably one of the most in-depth true crime commentaries I've come across. The bookies do a wonderful job of incorporating facts and theories, and our humor is contagious. Keep up the great work. Welcome to our murder club, Campbell Rising, where we are murder bookies for life. That is so sweet of her. Hashtag. So I know that our newest murder bookie, her name is Tori, and she actually has a true crime podcast called Citizen Sleuth. Uh, you can find her on Spotify, iTunes, and on Instagram at Citizen Sleuth the Podcast. Again, the episodes are short, but they're very well researched, and they are cold cases in the Chicago area. So definitely give her a listen. These cold cases could definitely use a little heat. But pun appreciated. <laughs> yes. So thank you, everybody, to listening in with us. We're glad to have you here. So, Joe, what are we pulling off our murder shelf today? We are going to take a look at To Kill and Till Again, the terrifying true story of Montana's baby-faced serial sex murderer. 
by John Costner. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a title, I have to tell you. We both read it on Kindle, but it's roughly 352 pages. And for me, I don't know about you, but it was a fairly quick read. Oh, a yeah. real, real page turner. Set in the backdrop of beautiful Missoula, Montana, this is the story of Wayne Nance, the Missoula Mauler. Uh, he was found to be responsible for the brutal sex slayings of several townspeople from 1974 to 1986. And the signs of psychopathy were there when Wayne was a child, especially in his formative years as a teenager. Upon becoming an adult, it would seem that Wayne hid behind the mask as well. He was always willing to lend a hand, yet there was still something off about him always beneath the surface. We'll dive into the life of Wayne and how he did his job at Conlin's furniture and how it provided plenty of access to victims. That was all he needed, opportunity. We weave in and out of time as Costin provides us with explosive detail and clarity, showing us just how cruel and sadistic this killer could be. If you haven't read the book, that's okay. Just follow along with us. It's a really compelling story about a lesser-known serial killer with a supremely twisted conclusion. The stark lesson is learned. You never know who you can really trust. So John Costin, the author, he's a seasoned journalist as well as a former news editor for the Wall Street Journal. He has previously written for the Watertown Daily Times, the Hartford Current, and the Miami Herald. In Costin's Acknowledgements chapter... He discusses the first time he came face-to-face with evil, and that was when he worked at the Watertown Daily Times back in 1972. Now, this is a serial killer whom I'm very familiar with, having grown up near Rochester, New York, the Arthur Shawcross. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So at the time Costin became aware of him, Shawcross hadn't progressed to prostitutes yet, but he was convicted of manslaughter in the killing of a young girl, Karen Ann Hill. He was also thought to have been the killer of another young boy called Jack Blake. When he was found guilty, he was already on parole for other crimes committed in the past and went on to serve 15 years of a 25-year sentence. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem long enough. No. But right around the time he was released in 1987, he began to kill again. And I really I struggle that Costin didn't write a book about him, but that's another story, especially since he was there. But we know that these are just murders of, with the children that he just will never discuss. Sharecross, no. He, yeah. he won't. But maybe it was just too close to home for Costin. Yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine that. I know we should probably do a book out on him. I don't know if you've seen it, but check out Interview with a Serial Killer. I think I saw it on Netflix. I know it's on YouTube, too. It's less than an hour, but it's an interview with Shawcross. And he just he gets up and leaves the interview because <laughs> he's like, I don't want to talk about these kids. I well, found it very compelling just to see in the inner workings of his mind. He doesn't mind being a serial killer of adults. Yeah. But a child killer? Oh, no. That's offensive to None of them want to talk about it. No. We also see Costin's experience with Shawcross and true crime led him down the path to also begin researching and writing about more than just Nance. He also is the author of Sleep My Child Forever. And that's the chilling story of Ellen Bohm, a St. Louis woman who killed her children for insurance money. Pleasant woman, I'm sure. We'll have enough murder and mayhem shortly. So, Jill, what tasty treat did you make for us today? Well, this is not only tasty, but it's oddly appropriate for this book. Wasabi deviled eggs. Now, I will admit, there's a bit of doing to making this. These look really tasty, though. Right. (laughs) They are, but the steps aren't terribly difficult. All right, you boil water. Most people can boil water. You put the eggs in. You set the timer. You take the eggs out. They cool. You peel them. You cut them in half. 
And then you mix the yolks with the ingredients and you put half of it in the egg whites. Poof, and you're done. What did, what did you say to me last night when you were making them? I think I, I quote, they were defiant damned eggs. They were. They wouldn't peel to save their yolk. They would. Oh, <laughs> seriously, it, it, they were meant to be scrambled. These were meant to be scrambled eggs. They were defiant. Those shells would not come off. But I, I think you need to make some clip art on that. That's my personal opinion. These shells were hard to crack. Yeah. I'll work on it. Definitely work on it. Because I love my clip art. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a real twist on the common dish with wasabi. I've also used ginger instead of the wasabi. I've served them both. It's also really high in protein, like three grams versus one gram of carbs. So it's very pleasing to people. You, know? mm-hmm. you can also put bacon bits on top. And it, I have to say it's also gluten-free. There we go. So there's a lot there that you have to look forward to with your uh, wasabi deviled eggs. The recipe is on our blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com under episode six, To Kill and Kill Again by John Costin. Now, Tara, what are we drinking? Well... I've been trying to come up with something because every time I really do think about Wayne, I I don't know why, but like Natty Ice or Bush Light really comes to mind. <laughs> That's about right, uh, yeah. But this is book club, though. I really wanted to do something a little bit classier. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but since you told me you were making these, I really, really just wanted this this perfect pairing. And I didn't know. We've been doing sparkling wines and white wines. And I know that's probably the safe bet, but I really wanted to do something adventurous. So I actually reached out to Wine Folly. And if you guys don't know about Wine Folly, they're a really great wine learning website. And I highly recommend if you have any questions or just want to look up a certain wine that you're tasting, I would definitely go. Madeline Puget, she's just really fun and entertaining, has really awesome graphics about what things look like in terms of flavors, tasting profile, that kind of thing. So anyways, I reached out and I said, hey, my friend Jill, she's making these wasabi deviled eggs. What do you recommend? I I think a red might go really well. Well, I think I stumped them. (laughs) The the response I got back was this tasting or this pairing is out of scope for wine folly. Out of scope? Out of scope. You broke wine folly. I I broke them. (laughs) As I was talking to Jill, like in the midst of my lamenting, like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We have to record soon. We got to figure this out. She had an awesome idea. Why not some sake? I haven't touched sake in probably about 10 years at this point. And I had honestly, <laughs> I completely forgotten about it. But wasabi, sake, I really don't know about eggs, but it seems like it might be nice. Well, uh, Jill's hubby, Dan, who we've mentioned a few times on the podcast, he, he knows a little bit about sake. So we actually did a little sake tasting this morning. Yes, we did. And we've mm-hmm. been tasting two different sakes and pairing them with the eggs. So out of the two sakis that we tried, the perfect one for us today is called Taiku, and we'll post a picture of it. Taiku is a Jumai Gingo sake. It's a premium sake produced at the Umeno Yado Brewery located in Nara, Japan. And this is your clear sake, so what you would think of sake. The Taiku, it's fresh and balanced with notes of pear, which pairs perfectly with the wasabi and the eggs. And you just want to serve it slightly chilled, not refrigerated, and definitely don't make it hot, I guess hot sake is cheap sake to bring out the sugar and some other flavors just make it a little bit more palatable yep exactly Um, but we also tasted this one called moonstone which i think is Mm. the perfect breakfast sake (laughs) it really (laughs) is i mean we're trying this at like (laughs) 10 a.m in the morning so bear with us it's called a nagori sake it's usually not clear and it's almost creamy it's less purified 
and it has notes of coconut and lemongrass and it almost looks like coconut milk oh it was so good and there's there's literally no bite to these like you can barely taste any alcohol flavors and they both clock in uh between 13 and a half 14 percent so i'm at the point i almost can't do my face right now but can't buy <laughs> Alrighty. So getting back to our book here and our serial killer, just how did Wayne, the boy next door, the nice guy willing to give a hand, how does he become a serial killer? He was all of these things, but as we see in the book, every gift given, every favor requested came with a price. This book starts near the end of the killer's more than a decade-long murderous career. Costin describes Masilla as being at idyllic place to live, to raise your family, to feel safe, an oasis for man. He destroys the fantasy of this notion within pages of the opening sentence to describe someone or something calling the young and the beautiful, the pride of the community. Costin's words drip with relentless loathing for the key character that he's about to discuss. He uses a plethora of expertly worded sentences who evoked that same emotion he feels for this despicable creature who preyed upon those who put their trust in him. Wow, oh, tough one. As we go through the first couple chapters, Costin tells us of the stellar individual we have on our hands. And I say that with a bit of sarcasm. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's really what people thought. Not only was Wayne Nance a remarkable worker holding down two jobs, he was always there for you always there to lend a hand, the one who would do any favor for you. He was always the one to be counted on. And girls, he would dote on you like not even your boyfriend would. He'd bring you flowers or cards. He'd remember birthdays, holidays, you name it. Wayne had a tendency to make you feel like you were the only one in the room. Albeit, maybe a little weird, mm -hmm. but the only one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, was this part of his shtick? I mean, just the way that he would keep potential victims calm and completely unsuspecting in the dark. But by being helpful, lending a hand, not forgetting birthdays, but not fully being able to pull it off perfectly. So it came across as weird, harmless, but weird. A little weird. Yeah. Well, if you haven't read the book, we'll definitely express the, the weirdness. Yeah. So Nance's spree began in the winter of 1974 and came to an abrupt end in the early fall of 1986. And he operated roughly the same time period as our subject in our first series, Joseph James D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. We learn of a girl named Robin. She was a drifter. She'd been kicked out by a long haul trucker who'd been giving her a ride. Her only fault that night when she was booted from the truck was going to the cabin. And this was the place where Wayne worked part-time as a bouncer. And for some reason, he was immediately drawn to her. I'm thinking maybe it was because she was an outsider, someone who wouldn't be noticed perhaps if she went missing. Oh, I think so. Although quickly falling into a sexual relationship with Robin, he kept her mostly hidden from view. She came to reside at the home where Wayne and his father shared some close quarters. George Nance, Wayne's father, didn't mind the girl being around as she had nowhere else to go. No money, no food. She kept the place tidy. And at work, Wayne would brag about their sex life, which was fairly unusual for Wayne as he usually was the shy guy when it came to intimacy. 
However, whilst it's Robin tucked away at home, Wayne was also involved with another young girl, a girl named Joni Dalcomte. She was just 18 when she started dating Nance, almost 10 years her senior. And Costin said he seemed like the nicest guy she had ever met. He was the kind of man she dreamed about marrying one day. Oh my god. However, Joni's dreams are they're going to be dashed just soon after their romance started. I think they did sleep together. It was her first and then their first time. But Mm. almost immediately after, Wayne broke up with her because he felt he was getting too serious about her. And he didn't like that. He wasn't a family man. And while they parted ways, we wonder if Wayne did maybe have feelings for her or if it was all just an act. And since we know we're kind of getting near the end at this point, just based on where Costin starts and the timeline that we know. Mm Mm-hmm. Did he feel that he may not be able to control his homicidal urges much longer? Oh, I'm voting for B. I don't <laughs> think he could control himself. And I definitely think just since we're on the subject of Joni right now, she'll never come back up in the book. So I'll get it out of the way now. Costa never revisits her. And we don't know what she thought about Wayne when everybody found out that he was potentially the serial killer. Well, he was the serial killer responsible for some of the slayings we we're going to go over. I always think it's interesting to try to get that hindsight is 2020 view from those who dated or married, he who is revealed to be the serial killer later. And it's really a shame that Costin didn't speak to Joni again, Mm -hmm. really what she thought of Wayne. You know, when love is shining in our eyes, we squint and we miss the killer who is hiding there Mm -hmm. because we're blinded by love. And when those rose-colored glasses are pulled away, it's downright traumatic for the loved ones. So I never really want to cause anyone more pain. Understanding what clues or warning lights they may have missed could help others in a similar position. Not really knowing what to look for, it might have helped them to see more clearly. I would 100% agree with that. Anyone out there? Someone just tell us the signs. We'll listen. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a shame. Anyway, what could have been? Yeah. The last time anyone would see Wayne's other summer partner, Paramore, Robin, would be on September 28, 1984, when he brought her out to a party. And a few days later, people noticed a change in Wayne, a darker mood, and she was gone. He said that she'd left with a trucker. No, he'd put her on a bus. I mean, which was it? But was it Wayne? Yeah, really. There'd be no clarification or closure for anyone on the matter particularly for his friend Julie Slocum, who was not only his, quote, best friend, but harbored a crush for many years. No one really bothered to ask. Julie said that Wayne was a super guy, and he would go outside after work to scrape the ice from anybody's windshield, brush the snow off their cars. He would show up at her doorstep with flowers behind his back and remember her birthday with a card and a present and not forget her on Valentine's Day. He was like a sweet brother to her. She was also very jealous of Robin and relieved that she'd finally gone because, you know, maybe now Wayne would pay attention to her. Finally, after all, she was one of the only sanctioned few to ever be allowed in Wayne's room. Wasn't she special? Wasn't she? Oh, yeah. Now, Wayne lived at home with his father, but there are a few things in Wayne's room that should have set off some red flags. Definitely red flags. Julie believed Wayne to be an accomplished artisan, having a handmade knife and dagger collection prominently displayed. Is it normal? Yeah, sure, because everybody. I guess it's Montana, but... And collecting bird feet. But he's an artist. Medieval weaponry, literature on the occult, 
items to, to note that should have set off your handy-dandy trust-your-gut meter. <laughs> the fake detective badges. I have all these fake... De- no, not a single one. Don't, that, don't not a single there. one. Maps of Mozilla and the surrounding towns, in addition to handmade blueprints, which turned out to be of their friends' homes. So creepy. Yeah. Uh, my personal favorite was the newspaper clipping of some female hairdressers at a local parlor, which was taped to his dresser and drew circles around some of their faces. Uh, holy shit, girl, open your eyes. Um, you know, this is not normal. Bird feet. Bird feet. All right. I can't imagine that someone would be thinking that things like this in his room were normal, but she must have been blinded by her feelings. Similar maybe to Liz Kendall. Mm-hmm. Through her relationship with Ted Bundy? Oh, Ted, yeah. Yeah, from what we do know that Liz did suspect Ted and talked herself out of it several times. Yeah. I mean, we know eventually Julie might suspect something, but she doesn't really want to. Even though she says he was kind of like a sweet brother, but she also had a crush. Very weird relationship, I feel like. But yeah. it is what it is. Crush on my brother. <laughs> so we're moving into Christmas Eve 1984 in Missoula. Visions of sugar plums, are, they're not dancing around in anyone's head, especially for Captain Larry Weatherman. Mm. Weatherman would be one of the key figures of law enforcement who would be afflicted over the course of his career by the mark of this killer, a signature flowing through time. He would become the caretaker of seven unsolved homicides, which in a town like Missoula were very rare. This was a community where the occasional bar brawl resulted in a tragic loss of life not a sadistic murderer snuffing out the life of those in the community. So that day, again Christmas Eve, a photographer reported that he discovered a human leg sticking out of the frozen ground, blackened by frostbite and decay. Weatherman was called to the scene, missing time with his family, which happened to so many in law enforcement around the holidays. They weren't on a picnic that day. No. With Lizzie's. (laughs) No Uh, picnic. He was hesitant to have his deputies try to even dig on Christmas Day. Again, holiday, super cold, grounds frozen. And while they had a body, there were no missing persons reports locally. So he decided to wait an extra day. You know, maybe things would get warmer. The ground would be softened. Who knows? Unfortunately, it it didn't. The ground was so hard that they had to chisel her out of it. They had to chisel the body out of the ground. To Weatherman's dismay, we do know that she was shot, but no bullets were recovered at the scene. So they really didn't have much to go on. And this alluded to the fact that the girl was killed elsewhere and her body probably dumped at this location. Yeah. And this was really worrisome to the captain as another young female whom he called Beaver Tail Hill Girl. He was assigning these names to Jane Doe's. They had some unsolved homicides where bodies they couldn't identify. Beavertail Hill Girl had been found previously back in 1980 on the eastern edge of town very near this particular victim. And Weatherman, he made no serious connection to the two bodies at the time, as there was nothing to connect them. But until he knew this particular victim's name, he would call her Debbie Deer Creek. They're naming these unknown victims after the geographic location where Mm -hmm. they're being found. And they're really close together. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, it would be more than two decades before we're going to learn the identity of uh, Debbie Deer Creek and the truth. Robin hadn't gone off with some trucker dumping Wayne Nance. She hadn't left of her own accord at all. Matter of fact, she was shot in the back of the head and twice in the temple and buried not more than three miles away from Wayne's home, just above Bonner Dam. Captain Weatherman would do his due diligence. 
he would put out a description of Debbie Deer Creek nationwide to other police agencies to help identify her body. Wow. Jurisdictional what? sharing is going on here. What? I know. I, I never. Know. I know. Just like Beavertail Hill Girl, Weatherman had an anthropological reconstruction of the skull made and put in his office. And these busts would sit there on the shelf until these crimes were solved. The murder rate really wasn't high in no. the area. But yet, we have these bodies being found. Mm-hmm. And as the chief of detectives, he kept a list of the cold cases and unsolved murders. And now there were six unsolved homicides dating back to April of 1974, just 10 years before. The one that defined Weatherman's career and how he viewed homicide took place on April 11th, 1974. And that was the murder of a minister's wife, Donna Pounds. Hey there, murder bookies. Listen up, especially those of you living in the Philadelphia area. The Frankfurt Slasher was a serial killer operating in the Frankfurt section of Philly from 1985 to 1990. There are thought to be at least eight to nine victims, many who were seen with a middle-aged white male shortly before they died. Though one man was convicted of one of these murders in 1990, there are questions about whether or not he committed this crime. The case remains unsolved to this day. Gina Gennari, a local writer and co-host of a podcast called Crime and Cookies, is writing a book about these crimes, and she needs your help. It is difficult to find information about the victims, as they're often characterized as barflies or street people, and some are also described as sex workers. It's Gina's goal to reach beyond these titles to give these women the dignity and love that they were worthy of in life and now deserve in death. If you or someone you know has any information about any of these victims, please reach out to her on the Facebook page, Women of Frankfurt, or at Crime and Cookies Instagram page, or via email at ginagenari at gmail.com. That's G-I-N-A-G-E-N-N-A-R-I at gmail.com. Any detail, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant, can go a long way to help humanize the story. These crimes were brutal and senseless, and Gina is dedicated to doing whatever it takes to tell this story with care and in a way that honors all of those affected by the Frankfurt Slasher. So we're going to try to spin the story as Costin does, as he provides many twists and turns in and out of Wayne's life and how he inevitably clashes with his victims. And through concrete evidence, we know what crimes he certainly perpetrated. However, there are others that cannot be really tied to him. But we'll see that there are some things that certainly might connect him to those crimes. And we will always do our best to remain respectful of the victims and tell their story. But we definitely do want to advise again, just how we advise at the top of each episode, that we are going to get into some really graphic details. And we just want to make you all aware of that now that we're getting into the murders that Wayne Nance perpetrated. We are now going to move back in time to Wayne's first kill. Okay, our first possible victim was a five-year-old girl named Siobhan McGinnis, who was last seen on February 5th, 1974. She'd been playing at a friend's house a few blocks away on the north side of town when her mother Bonnie called to let her know it was time to come home for dinner. Now, Missoula is a safe place even after dark, so it's not unthinkable in 1974 that Siobhan could walk a few blocks home by herself as she had done before. Only this time, she never made it home. A two-day search ensued with the police teaming up with the sheriff's department, and even the FBI joined in to find the little girl. The police discovered that on the same day Siobhan disappeared, 
There was also an attempted assault on another five-year-old girl in the same neighborhood. A man had tried to molest her in a shed. She had escaped unharmed, but was able to give enough of a description to have a sketch drawn of the man, who was of medium build, five foot eleven, between the ages of 18 and 20, with red curly hair. An amateur artist who happened to draw the suspect was Steve McGinnis, the father of the missing girl. So two days after Siobhan went missing, her body was found to stalk the interstate roughly 10 miles east of Missoula. She still wore her purple corduroy coat and jeans. The snow had covered some of the blood and had made it more difficult to spot her from the road. County Attorney Robert L. Dusty Deschamps III, the chief law enforcement officer in the county, arrived on the scene to discover that the crime scene had been severely contaminated by the city police park. Police officers are sifting snow with bare hands. Ugh. Footprints are everywhere. And while we're sure that this was absolutely devastating and the police were looking for just about anything that they could find, Jesse Deschamps knew that the investigation could now only completely rely on the physical remains of the body. And although a city case, Deschamps oh. took charge of the girl's body, sending it to Great Falls, where Dr. John Pfaff, the only forensic pathologist in Montana at the time, would perform the autopsy. Now, the driver who called in this gruesome discovery, he advised that he had seen a car parked where the body was discovered Tuesday night. It was an older green Cadillac, a 1958-1960 model with New York license plates and was missing the left rear fender skirt. It's a really good description to give, right? Very specific. It's pretty specific. Exactly. He even had a description of the driver. Uh, he said he saw a middle-aged man, face hidden by a baseball cap with dark colored clothing. And so a canvas of Missoula took place that night, block by block, looking for a green Cadillac. But unfortunately, no such car turned up. And hmm. city police chief Ray Roll, he was not optimistic that the car would ever be found, especially since they now had a body. And continuing the mystery, the redhead that Steve McGinnis had drawn, he ended up being a local 15-year-old boy who turned himself in that Friday night. But he was released. A polygraph would conclude that he was not involved. <laughs> And the autopsy performed by Dr. Pfaff concluded that Siobhan was fatally stabbed twice in the chest after suffering two blows to the top of her head to knock her unconscious. She also had been brutally raped and was alive between 8 to 12 hours from when she had been first attacked. That poor child. Easy to dominate and unfortunately easy to kill. I know. And from what I know from you and listening or reading, listening and reading at this point, we know that this is usually the path that a lot of serial killers will take. They start with someone they know they can overpower, and then they escalate. And if it was the same killer, meaning Wayne Nance, we know that this tragedy would be echoed not even two months later when another horrific crime took place roughly 10 miles away. Donna Pounds. Donna Pounds, who we talked about. 39 years old. She was the preacher's wife. Unselfish and giving as they come. Costin goes on to describe Donna and her husband Harvey and the life that they lived together. They were devout Christians. She supported him every step of the way in becoming a minister, and they're both very active in their community. They'd recently celebrated their 22nd wedding anniversary with their daughters, Kathy and Karen, at home. Their son, Kenny, he had just returned from the Army duty in Texas. Harvey had purchased a blender for Donna. A blender. It's a good tool back in the day, I imagine. Just note, you never buy appliance. For a wedding anniversary gift. No. No. Ne no. Note. It's a very important. I'm going to put this in show notes because you never, never buy an appliance. Well, I guess we're about to see for, what happened. Yeah. yeah. 
sweet Harvey had bought his loving Donna a blender and they, they had cake and they celebrated at home. Her murder is described as sadistic sexual torture. And when it came to Nance, he was literally the boy next door. He was a friend of Kenny's, their son and a neighbor. So on April 11th, 1974, it was thought that Wayne Nance ambushed Donna in the master bedroom that afternoon when she came home. He stood there, gloved hands, holding a 22 caliber Luger that Harvey owned, and he brutally raped her after tying her hands and feet to the bedpost with a white cord. Now, Nance knew the family, and he was familiar with the house, so he knew exactly where the gun was kept. Only a handful of people knew that. Yeah. When he was finished, Nance forced Donna into the basement, where he tied her up again, and proceeded to shoot her five times in the back of the head, execution style. He then inserted the gun into Donna's vagina and left it there. No one heard any gunshots, and Costin ends the chapter with the same coolness that Nance exhibited when taking Donna's life. The furnace fired now and then, sending a rush of heat upstairs, where the room temperature was kept at the nationally recommended 68 degrees. It was six o'clock that night when Harvey came home and discovered Kathy, his youngest daughter, and a friend watching television. Only he felt something was amiss when she said, I don't know, Dad, but there's ropes all over the beds and the rug is messed up in there. Upon a quick search of the house, he determined that there were ropes tied to both his daughter's bedposts. In reaching his own room, he saw a more disturbing scene. The same rope tied to the bedposts, but Donna's clothes were strewn about, and his gun was missing from the holster where he kept it. After safely removing his daughter and her friend from the house, he checked his son's room. The guitar was on the bed. Odd. Who would have taken it down from the wall? Remember, he was down in Texas. Now there's only one place left to go, and that was the basement. And Harvey phoned the police just shy of 6 p.m. to relay what he found. So we know Donna's body is down in the basement. And yeah. one of the first to arrive on the scene was Jesse Deschamps, who we know from the McGinnis investigation. And followed closely behind him was Missoula County Sheriff John C. Moe, a 30-year law enforcement veteran. He would later advise the Missoulian reporter that this was one of the most vicious scenes that he had ever run across. And I'm sure for three years, that's holds a lot of weight. Yeah. So really. Moe would have his team canvass the area, going door to door, asking if anyone had seen or heard anything, looking for clues that might lead to whomever had done this. And as Dusty Deschamps and Sheriff Moe are downstairs in the basement waiting on the funeral director to come and take the body of Donna Pounds, a detective walks down the stairs with something in his hand. He said, and we know our friend Sheriff Patrol Larry Weatherman, who mm -hmm. we're going to talk about consistently. Well, Larry had found a light brown surgical glove outside around the house, and it appeared to be covered with blood. And on the back was the inscription, Amber plus large number 366. The stark reminder of a killer on the loose in their community hit them hard. And just the day before, a headline in the local paper read, Policeman Hope Science Can Find Siobhan's Killer. Because Siobhan, she was killed two months prior to Don Pound. Yes. Could this be the same guy? Siobhan was never connected to Nance officially, but Costin and law enforcement in Missoula, like Dusty Deschamps and Larry Weatherman, would say that you can almost guarantee that Wayne Nance was responsible. Costin notes that two gruesome murders that were within two months of each other, with the bodies found barely 10 miles apart, would not go unnoticed in this quiet, safe town. 
and Costin was right. The sentiment would not be overlooked by the townsfolk and local law enforcement. While the MO, the modus operandi, is not similar, nor is the victim type, this doesn't mean that the killer is not the same. It just means that he may be evolving or had an opportunity where he was forced to improvise. These changes make the killer very hard to catch because a pattern doesn't exist. The vicious rapes and the brutality of the murders are the only connectors. No ligatures compared to white clothesline rope, a child to Donna's middle age, and stabbing versus shooting. You use victimology to learn about the killer. Who was targeted? Why? When? A vulnerable child with a very limited ability to resist and fight back. This would tell me that the perpetrator is insecure, uncertain, picking someone who he can easily dominate. He's not the most skilled or experienced killer, or he's a pedophile deliberately looking for a child to assault. Now, the second victim is a grown woman, so we see escalation and increase in confidence. The first murder went well, so it's puffed up his ego, his narcissism. He knows Donna Pounds, so he knows he can get inside without difficulty. And then when alone, he can attack her, terrify her, tie her up, rape her repeatedly, assault her, and kill her. He's had a taste of it now. He's thought about this for quite some time, and now he's acted on it twice successfully. He likes it. He feels powerful. He feels in control. He likes this sex. It drives him, and he won't stop. So as the investigation into Donna Pound's murder gets going, Sheriff Moe decides to keep the gun placement hidden from the public in addition to how many times she was shot. Again, that was five times in the back of the head. And now this is a smart move. Sheriff knows that people do start to confess. If they ask, hey, where was the gun? How many times was she shot in the back of the head? It would definitely alleviate any false confessions that might be made. And we know that people do falsely confess. All the time. And at the end of the search, Sheriff Moe was left with the body of Donna Pounds, that rubber glove, a single twenty-two caliber bullet that had been embedded into the wall in the corner of the master bedroom, the clothesline from the bedposts, a knife from the family's kitchen, and a single pubic hair that was found on the Pounds' bed near a large blood stain. Now, Sheriff Moe has a suspect in mind. The husband. It's always been. Right. Listen, they have... shouldn't have bought the blender. It's... (laughs) No, she might have shot him for the the blender. Uh, All right. Well... Well, he's a suspect because he bought her a blender, and you shouldn't buy a woman an appliance, according to Jill. Not not, not on your anniversary. (laughs) I mean, unless you specifically ask It's him. practical, Jill. Oh, well, <laughs> sorry. My bad. All right, so it's always the husband. Anyway, no one who knew Harvey would ever suspect him of such a crime. Now, the underlying thread here, which we'll get into at the end of our series and second cast, but there is this rumor going around that the murders of Siobhan McGinnis and Donna Pounds were linked to a satanic cult. Yes, the satanic panic has come to Missoula, and believe it or not, it hit hard even there in this quiet little mountain town of 30,000 people. Harvey Pounds and his church weren't making things any easier. It is rumored that Harvey was also spreading rumors about witchcraft and Satanism being involved in his wife's death. Why? Uh, Yeah. And, And what was found at the crime scene... The symbols with ligatures and all of this wasn't true. See, but what did he see when he went down into that basement? I, <clears throat> <laughs> Aunt, Herbie doesn't really have an alibi. 
because no one could corroborate his story of being at lunch. He had this 45-minute lunch period, and he was by himself, so he could have gone home and committed the crime. The number one reason they pursued him was that evidently there were some marital difficulties that they uncovered as they were doing the investigation. Harvey was attempting to have an affair with another married woman in his congregation. Mm. So they latched on to this fact and that Harvey didn't seem distraught over his wife's death and that he even tried to insert himself into the investigation, which created more suspicion that he was the culprit. All right, if you're that close to the murder, please don't insert yourself into the investigation. This is a PSA. Uh, yeah, you you do look extremely suspicious if you happen to stumble upon something that the police don't know. And this is what happened to Harvey. He turned up a dictionary in one of his daughter's bedrooms that had a second bullet in it. Like, how did they miss it when they were searching the house and they'd combed through the house for hours and hours? So they didn't believe that they could have missed it. So he also claimed to have made love to his wife that night, which might cancel any legitimacy of any physical evidence semen, for example, that the autopsy might turn up. He did agree to take a polygraph, but his efforts to help really created more problems. Yeah. Oh, Harvey. Poor Harvey. What about the other suspect? Yeah, there is another suspect, not just the husband. So Paxton decides to wait until after he fleshes out Harvey as numero uno on the list. And Detective Phil Novis came to see Dusty Deschamp asking for a warrant to move on Harvey Pounds. However, the night of the murder, some information had been turned up regarding a local boy, Wayne Nance. A neighbor was certain that she saw him in the Pounds' backyard that day. In fact, there were multiple sightings of someone fitting his description in the neighborhood the day of the murder. Curly red hair and glasses. Hmm. And this was a day that Wayne should have been at school. Sheriff Moe found it difficult to comprehend that an 18-year-old high school senior was capable of committing such a horrible crime. Nance knew the family. He was a friend of their son, Kenny. Nance even admitted to knowing where Harvey kept his Luger. But what would be the motive? What reason did he have to kill Donna Pounds? Deschamps knew of Wayne. He was 11 years his senior. He also had a younger sister in Wayne's class at Sentinel High, the local high school. And as the kids had grown up together, he knew that Wayne was tied as a little bit of an oddball. So he told Nobis, you can't do it. I, I can't sign this arrest warrant for Harvey. There just isn't a clear suspect and every lead needs to be explored. So now Larry Leatherman, he's the police officer chosen to execute the search warrant of Wayne's room as it relates to the death of Donna Pounce. Although a rookie, Weatherman was recognized by his superior, Ray Froelich and Sheriff Moe as a prime candidate to one day make detective. And it was Larry who had found that amber glove outside of the Pounds' house, the one with the blood on it. Mm-hmm. So finding the matching glove was of utmost priority. The deputies drove out to Tamarack Trailer Park to where the Nance family trailer was to present the warrant in order to conduct the search. They hoped there wouldn't be any trouble. Wayne's mother, Charlene, she answered the door. And upon seeing the search warrant, she lets them in without issue. She respects the law. Weatherman entered hoping to make a pair of matching gloves and find some white clothesline rope. Well, the police also found a match to the core of the rope used for the ligatures at the store outside of town, but no one remembered that anyone had come to town to purchase it. Harvey Pounds did remember that some clothesline had gone missing a year prior, but the details seemed insignificant at the time. So did Wayne take it? A year ago. Uh, Really? 
He couldn't recall having any other rope in the house. Now, in Wayne's room, Weatherman noted that it was messy, and that wasn't even the right word for it. Costin states that whatever was in the room made Wayne out to be more than just a pack rat. There was a settled order to things. Sound familiar? All that shit in his room (laughs) that Julie saw? (laughs) Yeah. That was when Larry saw it. The black leather duffel bag. Because someone had seen a man fitting Wayne's description with a black duffel bag. And this is when his heart began to race. Wayne's mother's nervousness was palatable. There was something inside physical evidence that would be of utmost importance. And the search of Wayne's bag and the room produced some 22 caliber bullets and shell casings. The same same ones used in the death of Donna Pounds and some bloody underpants in his dresser, which unfortunately Charlene, Wayne's mom, admitted to washing. You think she asked any questions? Nope. No, well, yeah, we'll talk about her shortly. No. I don't think she would have either, right? Like Harvey inserting himself into the investigation and insinuating that a satanic cult was afoot, Wayne didn't help himself either. He bragged to classmates. And Stan Fullerton was one of those where he bragged about being the number one suspect. That same classmate also remembered Wayne bragging about skinning cats alive and then he lived close to the pounds. Sick little kid. Well, you didn't do it, did you? Stan asked Wayne. No, was the response. But Stan would wonder why someone would be proud of being a suspect in a brutal slang, and why would he brag about it? Well, Stan wouldn't be the last classmate to have a private audience on the subject of Wayne's involvement in what by now was easily the most sensational murder case in modern Missoula's history. Don't you think? Bill Van Canigan, another classmate, was also privy to some really bizarre behavior exhibited by Wayne the day after the murder of Donna Pounds. Bill witnessed Wayne sitting in a window, apparently in a trance. Wayne broke the silence. It's been done. What's been done? Bill asks. Wayne turned to Bill, showing him a pentagram that was now etched into his skin on his arm that had not been there previously. Oh, good Bill felt sick. He'd always laughed off Wayne's wild intimations of needing to kill someone before his 19th birthday so he could join a satanic cult. And not one to really jump to conclusions... But this was suggestive enough for Bill. The culmination of what he knew about Wayne and all the things that he had heard him say, Bill knew it down to his core. Wayne had killed Donna Pounds. Did Wayne think he had initiated himself into some cult by murdering Donna? That he'd proven something to some mythical being or himself? That he'd made himself worthy of being some Satanist or something? Maybe he'd been obsessed with the notion whether it was valid or not well you know belief is a strange and wonderful thing and around that time i I think just a few years before in 1969 anton lavey he published a book called the satanic bible he was a former lion tamer and speaker on the occult and he made satanism a thing and those looking to follow satan were inspired to receive a mark of any kind so a pentagram seemed perfect for a new initiate and again, we'll pull on that thread of Satanism and the Satanic Panic in Second Cast, as there really is a lot to unpack there, but we just, we're not going to get into it right now. And it runs so much deeper than Wayne's limited involvement. So Stan Fullerton, whom we mentioned a moment ago, he saw that pentagram too. And Wayne said, playing around with my knife and I put this in my arm. 
Yeah, they, that person stabbed. My knife slipped. Slipped. Yeah, sure. Another senior, Tim Brigman, who had known Wayne since the third grade, heard something a little different. That he had taken a piece of wire and crafted it into a shape of a pentagram, rendering it hot enough to brand himself with the insignia. So Wayne's off-town stories. Who knows what's real anymore? Who knows what's fake? So Wayne, he was mostly what we would call a nerd today. Mm -hmm. Not an outsider, more of a loner. He was someone who was into monsters. Conan the Barbarian. Remember that? Arnold Schwarzenegger oh, yes. movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. The Occult. <laughs> and in the 1970s, amidst the growing unrest in the national public as it related to the Vietnam War, times were changing, conventions just being thrown out the window. He would break out into song in the middle of the high school hallway singing doo-wop. <laughs> I mean, this is a guy that we've obviously grown to hate. You almost can't even imagine it, but just to know this is what he does. And he wore a shrunken head charm and always carried a knife, one of those things that wasn't allowed. Still isn't even allowed today, but no one seemed to tell Wayne otherwise. And he didn't really care what others thought. And almost in an anecdotal type fashion, it would almost be semi-comical if we didn't know what Nance would become. Costume relays how Wayne got a hold of a hypodermic needle at school. And he always would say, I'm going to poke somebody with it. <sighs> I don't know why this seems funny to me, just thinking about like poking someone. But like just jokes with kids in high school. That's just what he goes and does. He goes and stabs yeah. somebody in the leg with it. But he does it. He does it. <gasps> All right, so Wayne's going to be remembered by his classmates as an oddball. Shocking, right? Yeah. Slightly scary. And after the poking uh, with the hypodermic needle, maybe even dangerous. He liked pointy things. Yeah. His teachers, though, would remember Wayne for his art. Remember the prominent displays of handcrafted weapons that Julie described in his room? Yeah. How can one forget? Right. A counselor at Sentinel, uh, Darlene Smith, would later recall... The thing that I can visualize about Wayne Nance's face as he was a senior was his very curly red hair, very steely eyes, very penetrating. And I don't mean to say cold, but they didn't have a lot of warmth to them. His skin was very pale, and he was a lot of contrast of colors or lack of them. And I remember his fantastic art, his fantastic art being slightly negative and if not for the faint of heart, that's for sure macabre themes that scream disorder and chaos. And just as we're beginning to get to know Wayne as a young adult, Costin decides to take us further, all the way back to the beginning, to when Wayne was just eight years old and part of a family that was besieged by all sorts of issues from alcoholism to criminal activity. All right, so what is Wayne's family like? Well, his dad, George, was a long-haul trucker who, by definition, was out hauling on the road. So he wouldn't be home that much. He and Charlene had been living in a small house in Missoula when they moved into the Elmar Trailer Park with an expanding family, named for Elmer and Marge Frame. Now, this was a very planned out trailer park, complete with paved roadways, which is you know unheard of elsewhere. Uh, Charlene is a successful and popular waitress, and they're working at the boom times in the 1950s when the lumber industry is king in Montana. George was 24, Charlene was 16 when they were married, which is not unheard of in the 1950s. Crazy inappropriate oh, today, yes. a huge no-no. But the local papers had other engagement and wedding announcements around that time of high school girls and their betrothed. So this is normal. normal. <laughs> yeah. Quotes. Yeah. Normal. Yeah. Sarcasm. The Nances had their first child, Desiree, in 1953, born eight and one half months after the wedding. 
Mm-hmm. Wayne came next in October 18, 1955, followed by their second son, William, in 1960, another daughter, Veta, in 1962. Once Veta arrived, it was definitely time for a larger home without question. Oh, yeah, definitely. So they left Elmar Trailer Park and moved to Tamarack Court, which is a step down in terms of comfort and class. Now, by that time, Elmer and Marge were not really sorry to see them go. Elmer had witnessed a scene that had turned his blood cold, and it involved eldest son, Wayne. Surprise! All right, listen, brace yourself, murder bookies. This is not going to be pleasant. All right, so Bring Elmer... Sake. Yeah, definitely time for some more sake. All right, Elmer is doing his usual maintenance chores about the trailer park, and he notices eight-year-old Wayne, you know, aimlessly coming down the street, you know, as boys do. Only Wayne couldn't see Elmer, so he doesn't know he has an audience or a witness, if you prefer. And he's walking past the incinerator that was used for trash, and you've probably seen the type. It's cone-shaped. It has a hinged door, which is near the firebox. You insert the garbage flip the door, and the trash is gone. It gets burned up. So earlier, Elmer had noticed that a family of kittens had made the shelf by the hinged door into a little makeshift home. And given that it's cold in Montana, the kittens could keep warm by the fire. So Elmer sees Wayne take a look, noticing the kittens all snuggled up, and Elmer feels a chill run down his back. And an icy realization of what Wayne is going to do, exactly a split second before he did it, horrifyingly frozen, unable to shout for him to stop, and Wayne lifted the door on its hinge, sliding the kittens down into the fire. Uh, Just, oh my God, I'm sick thinking about it. And he's freaking eight years old. Just like that. (sighs) I'm sharing this with his wife, Marge. She suggested that maybe boys do that, trying to understand. No. 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 I think she's Clutching, trying to explain away such awful, horrible behavior, such as burning kittens to death. No. But no, they, they don't do that. But children without empathy, they certainly do. Children who hurt animals and kill them, they're in serious trouble and they need intervention. If you know a child who hurts animals, even if it's your own, say something. Get that child help, please. It really isn't normal. And as we know, these are very, very significant predictors of murderous behavior. Yeah. There was a recent longitudinal study done on children who hurt animals. So that's studying them as children and then again as their adults and then again the same ones as they become parents. And it was found that 3% of adults admit to abusing animals as children. And when they did, it began around the age of 12. About 3% of children reported being cruel to animals and beginning about 11. So by any measurement, Wayne is really young to be doing this at eight. Now the study also shows that parents who abuse animals and children, they are more likely to be perpetrators of domestic violence than those who do not. So watch how people treat animals because that can really be telling. You know, I always use the waiter or waitress test. Mm -hmm. How someone treats them will reflect on their behavior. Yeah, that's a a really good litmus test as a former waitress. Yeah, if you treat your waiter or waitress like crap, then you're probably not someone I want to associate with. There's a special place in hell 
for people who treat their waiter or waitress like like crap. So yeah, same same for people who do this stuff to animals. Hey, me, did you watch Don't Fuck with Cats on Netflix? No. It kind of begins with a similar story. Young man who is killing a cat and he posts the video. And then it doesn't stop there, though. I watched it. It was disturbing, but very, very thought-provoking. I know. I know we do this podcast, and I know I definitely seem desensitized to a lot of things. But when it comes to animals, I literally just can't. And I know the story of Luca Magnata, and forgive me for not watching Don't Fuck With Cats, but I I can't. Oh, listen, I get it. (laughs) For the record, I did not watch the video part that he posted. I just couldn't look. Because once it is seen, it cannot be unseen. Mm -hmm. And I did not need to see that. I got enough rolling around Mm -hmm. in my mind Mm -hmm. that I have to carry with me. I don't have to knowingly choose to to add more on the pile. Murder Bookies, if you do want to check that out and you have the stamina, it is intriguing. It is disturbing. Don't fuck with cats on Netflix. And from what we read in the book, Charlene, Wayne's mother, continued to work as a waitress at a place called Ming's downtown after the move to Tamarack. And while George was gone, he was out driving his truck. She drank some and disciplined by yelling at the four children, especially Wayne, who was the black sheep of the family, and he's always getting into trouble. And yet Wayne would redeem himself by getting good grades in elementary school. He was really gifted academically, and we see that. throughout. Like He was, he was crazy <gasps> smart. Like He was really super smart. And he would always go on to say he knew a lot, which gave him some status over his classmates. And he also knew a lot more about sex than any of his friends in school. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And Kasten writes that if a subject was taboo, Wayne had the answer. Well, Mr. Node all over here. Oh, yeah. He was also of average height, but strong and muscular for a boy his age. Yet he lacked athletic grace. And that really didn't translate into being a team player. <laughs> No, he's so, not a good yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so, for example, when playing basketball, he'd throw the ball at his teammate too hard for him to catch. And early on, Wayne really did have that desire to hurt, to inflict pain, not pleasure, not competitiveness, not even winning. And he also liked to pull stunts, like bring a snake to show and tell or pop out of the closet yelling to try to scare the class to death. I'm sure his teachers must have loved that. Oh, yeah. He was startling, scary, not doing something funny. He's not the class clown. He's the class bully, but with an edge. He's insecure about his standing, so he carved his own niche. He didn't care about his classmates, and they'd give him a wide berth. To just be Weird Wayne. To just do him. Classifying him as just Weird Wayne gave everyone a comfort zone and allowed Wayne to exercise his demons. Now, Jill, I know you were a teacher. How would you feel about this stuff? I mean, I definitely smack him, but I don't think you're allowed to that. No. When I was teaching high school, I uh, I had a stalker. Really? Yeah. Very early in my career, I had gone into my uh, classroom, and I had a ornate carved wooden box I had gotten in South Korea where I kept paper clips and, and whatnot, which was in my desk drawer. And it had been completely crushed. Now, this is weird because it was still inside the drawer. But, you know, I figured it had fallen. Someone had stepped on it, put it back in. So I at least know what had happened to it. Because I did share my classroom with other teachers. It wasn't exclusively mine. So now a few days later, I went to um, show a film. And I pulled down the screen. And it had been slashed with 
with three long vertical, <laughs> vertical gashes in it, and someone had drawn boobs on it. Mature. Yeah. Now, that was a surprise, and let's oh. say we mixed the film, and uh, we you know, went to on to, yeah, to do something else. But again, I still wasn't sure if it was directed at me mm. or not, but clearly somebody was something was going on with somebody. I also have to tell you, I wasn't as up on my criminal sexual behavior no. as I <laughs> as I am today. So while I was disturbed, I you know really wasn't sure it was me. Yeah. Why? But you know, it, now I of course realized that it was really twisted. It should have been more alarming than it was. Mm-hmm. Well, then came the first of three or four notes that I received in my school mailbox, handwritten, threatening me accusing me of giving whoever strange looks and he was going to stop me and he was going to get me. So they definitely were, you. Oh, no question. It's me now. Mm-hmm. It was incoherent, rambling. And this was clearly the product of a very, very disturbed mind. And now I am really frightened and I am really scared. Absolutely. Now I have this handwritten note and I go through all my papers from my students and I'm trying to match it. Handwriting. So investigative, even then. Well, I'm trying, who, is, who is this crazy person? And I really could not find similarities in the handwriting. Now, that made it more weird and more frightening because mm-hmm. if it's not a student, who the heck, who is this? Mm-hmm. Now I'm alarmed and I go to my vice principal, who is very aware at this point in time. My husband was a New Jersey state trooper. State police barracks literally ran up right physically against the high school where I was teaching. And he very much wanted to handle this. And I was like, no, 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 I'll handle this at school. And I'm literally in there talking to my vice principal about this when a guidance counselor came in with another issue about a student who seemed to be having some psychological problems and he was being paranoid because people were staring at him funny. Mm. And ding, 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 you know, this clearly had to be the same person because both making the same references from the note and telling this person. And sure enough, we found out that this was the person he confessed to vandalizing my room. He had he had, in fact, been my student several years earlier. He was a senior now. I hadn't talked to him in years, really. So had no reason to. So this is something that, yeah had been festering in his mind for for years. So he was ordered to stay away from me. They actually plotted a path where he could go through school and not be near my room or or have any access to me. And um, I was also the twirling coach at the time. Twirling? Yes, batons and flags and rifles and color guard and the whole thing. So we'd have practice after school. All of a sudden, he started dating one of my twirlers so that he could come and pick her up and wait for her after school. And clearly, that was not in the spirit of cooperating mm-hmm. and desisting from, you know, being uh, being around me. So he wound up being hospitalized. I eventually went on maternity leave because all this is going on when I'm pregnant. Oh, fine. I was terrified he was going to attack me and I'd lose the baby. So I go on maternity leave, and I think, well, this is behind me. I have the baby. And some months later, we are stopped at a Target or a Kohl's or one of these type stores, and the baby had fallen asleep in the car. My husband was, I said, you go in the store. I'll wait here with the baby. I don't want to disrupt her and whatever. 
and I'm sitting there in the car and I look up and who's walking out of the store? My stalker. Mm. And he's walking right at me and the blood drains out of my face. I crouch down as far as I low I can get. I'm covering myself. I'm covering the baby. He comes right. I thought he was looking right at me. He's looking. I'm beside myself. He was parked in the car right next to me. By the time my husband came and got in the car, I was chalky. I was chalky. He's like, what's that? What happened? I explained to him. Yeah. But he did finally graduate. You know, I came back to school a year or so later. Uh, I have to tell you, it was the most frightening thing I'd ever been through. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. You had a stalker. I know, um, I know you've had some interesting experiences at the school you used to work for. So high school students can be scary. Mm -hmm. This was a 17 year old high school student. Some years later, I did have another 17 year old high school student with explosive anger disorder who punched me in the face Mm -hmm. and left me disabled for life. But that is another story for another episode. But moral is you shouldn't um, teach children. <laughs> we need some people to. Don't underestimate high school students and what they are capable of doing. And if you know somebody who is exhibiting this type of behavior, no matter please who they are, help. yes, please. Yeah. So getting back to the story, for Wayne's mother, Charlene, being home alone most of the time with the kids, Wayne's temper drove her nuts. And he was bright. He read a lot, but he also got into fights quite often. And when George was around, he didn't really help matters in the least. I feel like he probably kind of encouraged it. Her cheered him on. That's my boy. Mm-hmm. George blamed everyone else for Wayne's lack of anger management. It was the world's fault. It was never Wayne's. No, nope. he's, he's not disciplined, but he's enabled. And there was this one time in third grade where Wayne got suspended from riding the bus because he'd been fighting too often. This is third grade. And George challenged the principal as to how he had the authority to do this to his son, to suspend him from getting to school on a bus. George said, I'm still putting this kid on the bus. And he told the principal, just try and stop me. How about telling Wayne? Knock it off? Yeah, don't beat people up. That seemed to be the right approach. But the next morning, George defies all authority and what he's been told, brings Wayne to the bus stop. He's going to put him on that damn bus. Yep. And so the principal even went as far to have consulted the Board of Education to see whether or not to ride the bus himself. Ultimately, they were like, I probably don't want to get on that bus. And he doesn't. So when George asked the driver if the principal was on board and was told no, well, George was like, well, that'll need to make a point now. So he takes Wayne, puts him in his pickup truck, and he drives him to school. You think Wayne learned anything? No, not a thing. And he sees the principal later that day and he says, you got to get them before they get you. That's my motto. Nice. So we really nice. feel like I'm not a parent, but I know some things. We know some things about positive and negative reinforcement. Thinking about being a parent is actually a really scary thing because now I'm not around kids. I don't even know how to talk to them. So like thinking about how Wayne was and how kids are literally inadvertently encouraging him to get away with murder. I am a parent. And while you don't blindly just take authority's word for it over your own child, teaching your child to disrespect authority does not do your child any good. Mm -mm. It really doesn't. Mm -mm. 
So things go on pretty much like this until 1968 when something pretty big happens. December 14th, 1968. It's a Friday night. I really wish that things had gone differently. A man named Howard Brine is counting the register at the local Super Saver store where he is the manager. And an armored car is due. As he's going through the process of counting his register, a customer is kind of lurking around. And all of a sudden, this customer shoves a gun in Howard's face and demands money. Howard gives the thief the bag. And instead of leaving immediately with the money. Stupid. Oh, yeah. The thief decides to tape Howard's hands together and is pushing him towards the back of the store. Now the goon pistol whips Howard in the back of the head. He's dazed with pain shooting through his head. Mm -hmm. And Howard sees this guy run to the front of the store. And there is this enormous crash because George, Mm -hmm. this is Wayne's father, has stopped to now throw a huge salt block through the plate glass window just as the armored car arrives. If you're going to commit a robbery, do it quickly and get the hell out. I don't want to give them advice, but I I mean, good lord. I'm not a criminal, uh, but it would seem to me that all of this is extremely unnecessary. Oh, yeah. Now, the driver of the armored car, Mike Cantrell, sees the broken glass, looks up, and sees this large man now racing for the back of the store, (laughs) and he radios for help. (laughs) Now, George Nance is now in the back of the store with his beaten victim, and every police car in Mozilla is en route to the Super Saver. Sheriff deputies, city police, highway patrol. Hey, it's a quiet area. This is a Friday night. Everybody wants to be involved in this huge robbery that's going down at the Super Saver. They're not going to miss this. This really sounds like my township. I won't go too far into my example, especially since this is ongoing. But uh, I think just literally there's nothing else going on. Every time there's an incident in my neighborhood, about six police cars and the canine unit show up. They have the canine unit shows up here. You're channeling my story here. Do I live in Missoula? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now, George is not looking to get shot to death, so he does let Howard go. And he's hiding in the back until, guess what? The police dog (laughs) finds him. So this is a huge headline in the local Missoulian newspaper. Two columns, photograph of George being handcuffed. He winds up getting released on bond, but five months later, he is going to be convicted. No shit. I know. I know. George pled guilty to felony robbery. He did testify that he had learned his lesson. He does have character witnesses begging that he be allowed to return to be be a productive citizen with his wife and his children. And and he has to be there for his 13-year-old son, Wayne. And the judge sentenced him to five years. Good. Someone needs to learn a lesson here. (laughs) George is going to serve less than a year, but... How just mortifying and embarrassing and and horrific for this family. Did this incarceration and humiliation make Wayne angry? Did it fuel his inner demons? Did it add to the anger that's already burning? Absolutely. 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 Leaving elementary school was already challenging for Wayne. And at this point, he decides that he is going to beat up the same boy every day. For the final 11 days of school. 
he just randomly picks this young boy. You are the one. I'm picking you. I'm going to beat you up. We have 11 days left. Every day I'm going to beat you up. Had this boy done anything to Wayne? No. No. Just like his father decided, I need money. I'm just going to go in and rob this place and screwed over Wayne's life and leaving him with this internal fury mm-hmm. and no place to vent it. He decides to take it out on some random stray kid. Great coping mechanism. Oh, yeah. Wayne. Oh, yeah. But after two days of beatings, Wayne just stopped. He just got bored. It was no longer satisfying. But this wouldn't be his last reason to become angry, unfortunately. Yeah, just with the incident with his father, another big event would completely shatter Wayne's world. And that was on April 4th in 1980. George had gone back to trucking after his parole. And that night, having returned home, he was expecting Charlene to be there to welcome him. Oh, honey, you're home. Oh, sweetheart, I've been all sitting these here things. waiting. Yes. That, that's not Charlene. I baked the cake. No. That is not Charlene. Nope. She'd gone to work that night, and she worked at a local place called The Cabin, where Wayne would end up working with his other brother at uh, another point in time. Mm-hmm. But this anger burning because Charlene wasn't home for him, George climbs back into his truck, and he goes off to get her. And, well, we know this isn't going to end well, right? Don't we know so already? So, right. Now, Charlene, she's a good worker. We know she's an excellent employee. People like her. And she's working at the cabin as a barmaid waitressing also at another place down the road called Tabor's Truck Stop. And the upside of working at the cabin was that Charlene could drink for free. Oh, do we know she has a little bit of a problem? So now George comes in, spots Charlene, and rushes over and says, hey, you're not working anymore. I'm home. You're coming home with me. Oh, no, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm working. And he accuses her of being drunk. And they have this huge fight that they decide to take outside. That was at least nice of them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure people probably watched from the windows because this was a doozy. And she yells and she screams. And then obviously being somewhat intoxicated, she gets into her own car, a 76 Cordoba, and she takes off. George gets back into his truck, still fuming, and they both kind of roar off into the night. Charlene in one direction, he starts to head home. And he's thinking, she's not going to go there, but let's face it, Chrysler Cordoba, that's going to zip along faster anyway. So he just decides, I'm going to go home, wait for her, she'll come home when she pulls off. Right. Only George couldn't know what was about to happen and that he'd never get to speak to his wife ever again. Charlene drove less than a mile away from the cabin, turned off onto the speedway, which is a semi-oval U-turn that makes a loop along the Clark Fork River toward the west side of Missoula. And about a quarter of a mile down this road, she turned left onto Deer Creek Road, crossed a bridge, and picking up speed as she went into Hellgate Canyon. This should have been a long, easy curve to maneuver, even at a terrific speed. Only Charlene went off the road and hit a giant ponderosa pine head-on and was killed instantly. Yeah. There are no brake marks, no attempt to swerve. She just sped up and driven straight into that tree, splitting her car in half, a single piece of sheet metal still remaining on the driver's side. It looks like she committed suicide. Yeah, pretty much. Queen yeah. was 25, Desiree 27, Bill 20, and Betta only 18. Charlene had been 44 and married to George since she was 16. A month later, George's father died, and the family moved out of the trailer of memories and into the modest house that his father had left them, a first for them. And now, interestingly, Wayne told his friends no one really knew if Charlene had accidentally veered too far off the shoulder, or if she had just been too drunk that night, or if she'd even done it on purpose. No one really knew? No. No no skid marks? No brake marks? No nothing? 
I don't know. I know you tried to find a map of the area, but it was too overgrown, so we can't really yeah. know what that looked like or if anything had been changed since the time, unfortunately. Yeah. So now we get back to Wayne in the midst of the Donna Pounds investigation. Costin moves us back and forth throughout time in the book. Wayne is still a senior at Sentinel High. Charlene is still alive. And we go to visit Ronald McDonald. <laughs> I did not name him this. I swear. It gets me every time. I, I'm sorry. I, I, but he, his name is Ronald McDonald. They may as well have named him Claude Moles. <laughs> All right. Wayne is barely 18 years old. He did come see Ronald McDonald. As a prime suspect in a murder case, which McDonald learned after speaking with the police further, it appeared that Wayne was only there to really collect information. Ronald McDonald is an attorney. So how does a lie detector work? How can you beat it? How does this evidence collecting work? Considering Wayne's fascination with the occult, particularly Satanism, and learning that Wayne was under suspicion of murder in the Siobhan McGinnis case leads McDonald to not represent Wayne further. He knew that the family had taken part in helping them cope with their loss, so in good conscience, he just couldn't represent someone who might have been connected to that in the slightest. Costin conveys McDonald's final impression of the meeting with Wayne. If he were involved in the slaying with Donna Pounds, he was going to do what was necessary to take care of it. He didn't need anyone else. There was something seriously wrong with this kid, guilty or innocent. He knows he's a suspect and he's unaffected by it. Now, while Wayne was working on how to beat the system, Bill Van Canigan, another student, Greg Barringer, who was working alongside Wayne at a place called Taco John's, now, they were extremely uneasy with Wayne and his antics. Bill was actually afraid of him. Mm -hmm. well, <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. I blame him. Yeah. Especially after receiving what he thought was a confession to the murder of Donna Pounds. It's been done. He actually... Yeah, it's been done. <laughs> right, exactly. He actually goes to Don Harbaugh, the principal of Centennial High, to tell him what happened. And Don urges Bill to speak with the police. But Bill feels that Wayne would come after him if he did that. So in the spring of 1974, the sheriff department called Harbaugh, and they decide to shuttle Wayne up to the Kalispell to take a lie detector test. That's when Bill and Greg break down and they decide to tell the whole story to the police about this so-called confession, his involvement in the occult, and how due to subtle threats throughout the school year, Wayne's dangerous. Mm -hmm. The crux of the issue was that the police lacked solid evidence that pointed directly either to Harvey Pounds, the husband, or Wayne. Eventually, we learned that both Harvey and Wayne passed their lie detector tests. Harvey's was inconclusive. Wayne's indicated he was telling the truth. Did he actually learn how to pass that test? It seemed like he might have spent some time trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. What did the police have? Nothing. They couldn't match the rope to the hardware store in town. The pubic hair they had found previously was gone. Just gone. Just gone. No fingerprints on the amber glove. They couldn't do anything with Wayne's bloodied underpants because his mother had washed them. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Charlene. Wayne, upon graduation, decided to join the Navy in June of 1974, and he is in the wind. And that concludes part one of our three-part series on To Kill and Kill Again by John Costin. 
So join us next time for part two, where we're going to discuss the first grand jury to be called in Missoula, other bizarre incidents in the night, the horrendous murders of Mike and Teresa Shook, and the couple who turned the tables on Wayne Nance. And if you want to get a head start on our next book, we are going to be reading about the infamous chameleon, the lady killer himself, Ted Bundy, in The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy by Elizabeth Kendall. This is a different story of Ted, the one told through Liz's eyes, as she lived out a romance with a man she thought she knew, but could barely even imagine. A memoir detailing two women's daily lives with a serial killer, this is a story of love and pain, tragedy, and horror. Thank you for listening. We are so happy that you're here. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Shoot us an email at jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. We're happy to hear from you and incorporate your thoughts on our readings into the show. Follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Podbean. Let our episodes pop right up into your feed. And if you can, please leave us a five-star review. Every little thing you do helps us to keep going further. Until next time, murder bookies, happy reading. Thank you.